Certainly is. As we saw from last, uh, from today's reading, things did not turn out well for Korach, Datan, and Aviram and their those associated with them. They picked the wrong fight at the wrong time with the wrong persons and ended up in a very, very wrong place. Sad for them. And it can often be sad for us too when we pick the wrong fight at the wrong time with the wrong persons and end up with some very wrong consequences. Today, we're going to learn from their bad way of arguing. And then we will see what our tradition says about some right ways of arguing. So let's spend a few minutes learning from the mistakes that they made. I'm gonna share eight quick pointers from the bad example of Korach and company. Number one, beware of your covetousness or resentment of what someone else has. None of this mess would have happened if Korach and company weren't resentful and jealous of what Moses, Aaron, and Miriam had. They were covetous. Check yourself for that, always. There is a reason why thou shalt not covet is the culminating commandment of the Ten Commandments. Number two, be mindful and grateful for what you yourself have. Gratitude is a fantastic antidote to the cancer of covetousness. Do everything you can to build your fund of gratitude. Israeli-American social scientist Tal Ben-Shachar, who taught one of the most popular classes ever offered at Harvard on happiness, said that every night we should write in our diary three things for which we are grateful in the day that has passed. As Dennis Prager says, you cannot be happy unless you are grateful. And happy, grateful people don't get swallowed up in some pit in the middle of the desert. Don't let that be you. Cultivate gratitude, which Korach and company failed to do. Number three, be fully aware of the negative consequences of your saying the wrong thing at the wrong time to the wrong person. Stop yourself. I'm talking to myself here. Stop yourself before you say something stupid. Force yourself to wait and to count the social cost of opening your mouth and, uh, or writing the message. If you write something angry, put it in a file and wait at least a day before you send it out. Number four, sorry, hold on a second, let me correct this. Just one bat moment. Number four, especially in cases where you are dealing with someone of superior status, realize that making accusations rarely, if ever, works out well for you. Korach and company 
accused Moses of being on an ego trip. They accused him of jeopardizing and victimizing Israel because of his ego trip. They accused him of abusing the people he was leading. Very stupid. Never accuse a superior unless one of you is leaving. Number five, ask yourself, am I just seeking to vent my spleen? Or am I looking to fix something broken? If you're trying to fix something that is broken, only then ask yourself three quick questions and save yourself a lot of grief. Here they are. Oh, back up. Just a moment again. We're gonna look at three quick questions, which are number six, number seven, and number eight in our list. Here's number six. Ask yourself, does that, this need to be said? Number seven, Ask yourself, do I need to be the one to say it? Number eight, ask yourself, does this need to be said now? If the answer is yes to all of these questions, then ask and answer this one. What is the best way to say what I need to say so that it will be well received? Korach and company did none of this, and they became the main event at a barbecue in the desert. Jewish tradition provides great wisdom on how to make arguments productive, relational, and positive. This requires telling another story about Hillel and Shammai. We are told in the Talmud of how for three years, the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai argued. One said, the halacha, that is the authoritative ruling on communal religious conduct is like us. Another said, the halacha is like us. A heavenly voice spoke. Both these and these are the words of the living God. And the halacha is like the house of Hillel. A question was raised. Since the heavenly voice declared both these and those are the words of the living God, why was the halacha established to follow the opinion of Hillel? Good question. It is because the students of Hillel were kind and gracious. They taught their own ideas as well as the ideas from the students of Shammai. Not only for this reason, but they also went so far as to teach Shammai's opinions first. Notice the respect they demonstrated in the midst of argument. This is a very important lesson, isn't it? Very rare in our days. Here's Rabbi Joseph Telushkin, a great writer. Read anything you can by him. You won't be sorry. Rabbi Joseph Telushkin comments on this in his excellent book, The Book of Jewish Values, A Day-by-Day -Day Guide to Jewish Living. Here is what he says. Significantly, the heavenly voice ruled in favor of Hillel and his disciples, 
even in areas of ritual dispute for moral reasons, he and his followers were kindly and humble. The wording of the passage suggests that Shammai's followers had grown somewhat arrogant, certain that they possessed the truth. They no longer bothered to listen to or discuss the arguments of their opponents. Their overbearing self-confidence led them to become morally less impressive. The language of the Talmud suggests by implication that they were not kindly and humble. And it probably led them to become intellectually less insightful after all. How insightful can you be if you are studying only one side of the issue? Because the school of Hillel studied their opponents' arguments when they issued a ruling, they were fully cognizant of all the arguments to be offered against their own position. Thus, the humility not only led to being more pleasant people, but also likely caused them to have greater intellectual depth. Rabbi Telushkin continues. He says, we can all learn a lesson from the behavior of Hillel and his followers. Don't read only books and publications that agree with and reinforce your own point of view. Don't only read websites and Facebook pages either that only agree with your point of view. If you do so, and many people do, you will never learn what those who disagree with you believe. At best, you will hear a caricature of their position presented by people who like you disagree with it. It would be a good thing in Jewish life if Jews in the different denominations or in different political camps started reading newspapers and magazines of the groups with which they disagree on a regular basis. If you seldom hear, read, or listen to views that oppose your own, and if almost everyone you talk to sees the world just as you do, your thinking will grow flabby and intolerant. That is often the case with ideologues on the right and on the left, both in religion and in politics. As this task teaches, as this text rather, teaches us, humble people are not only more pleasant human beings, in the final analysis, they may well be the, they may well be the only ones who will have something eternally important to teach. And uh, here is an example of how this sometimes works out in Israel. One of the most argumentative places on earth. This is from Rabbi Melissa Weintraub and Dr. Eyal Rabinovich. Rabbi Melissa Weintraub and Dr. Eyal Rabinovich in a presentation they do called Slowing Down the Conversation said this, in a context as polarized as Israel, we open the space to meaningful communication across disagreement when we show others that we get them, or at least are sincerely trying to. When we focus instead on making our case, no matter how compelling and substantiated, 
if we haven't demonstrated to our interlocutors that we get them, it simply won't land. Rather than listening to uh, or finding flaws, we seek to listen to help others articulate what matters most to them. We listen to identify the concerns, the values, the emotions, and stories that drive them. More generally, we alter our intention from winning an argument to seeking out comprehensive understanding. When I demonstrate that I have both the desire and the willingness to understand you as you wish to be understood, when I prove to you that I see you as you wish to be seen, I maximize the likelihood that you will listen to me in return. So now, in conclusion, I want to share with you 10 take-home lessons from this very interesting discussion. Number one, think about why you are voicing your disagreement and what's at stake. Is it your ego? Or are you just venting? Or are you looking to fix something? Number two, it is good to disagree. But the best disagreements will not be resolved for a very long time. A really good disagreement is about truth and it takes a long time to simmer. Number three, know the counter arguments and consider the truth in another person's opinion. Pluralism and complexity are in Judaism DNA. I wanna pause by saying the reason that so many, there are so many Jewish lawyers, and here I pay tribute to Holland Green, who was a Jewish lawyer. One of the reasons is that Talmudic uh, thinking uh, always examines the multi a multiplicity of, view of viewpoints, always looking at every side of the argument. And that's really good for discovering truth. Number four, when disagreeing, focus on listening rather than simply waiting for your turn to speak. Practice patience and attempting to understand the other. This will make the disagreement more cooperative while strengthening your own position. Number five, those who disagree strongly, even on fundamental issues, can still be in community with one another. That's very important. One of my best friends is Michael Radelnik, professor of Jewish studies at Moody Bible Institute. There are certain matters by on which we disagree. We always have, but we love each other like brothers. Community is more important than being right. Number six, reconsider your initial assumptions. A disagreement does not have to have a winner or a loser. Uh, it should be based on who learns something new and whose thinking remains unchanged. That, that's a, the question is not, have I won? And if the other guy lost? The question is, 
Did I learn anything? Did he learn anything? Or is one of us so stuck in the way we thought when we came into the argument that we haven't moved at all? That's a real loser, a person who cannot learn. Number seven, there is something to learn from everyone and everything, even those who hold positions you may find disturbing. Everybody has something to teach you and me. Number eight, there is strength in naming our own uncertainty. I read a book years ago about Greek, Greco-Roman uh, rhetoric. It's a brilliant book. The author's name is J something or other. I can't tell you the name right now. A great book. But one of the devices in Greco-Roman rhetoric was that when you're presenting an argument, it is very good for you to admit a weakness in your own argument. Admit a weakness. That creates tremendous credibility. And that's what this point is saying. There is strength in naming our own uncertainty. Number nine, in most cases, the people who are most convincing are those who are most skilled at listening. If you're not a good listener, you're not gonna have good credibility, either to the person you're talking with or to the people who are observing except if they were your cronies from the beginning, in which case they're not really there to learn anything. They're just there to cheer you on because they hate the same things you do, which is too bad. Number 10, debates can turn friends into enemies. So don't leave the debate until you're on loving terms. I wanna pay credit to Dr. Michael L. Brown, who you can see on Facebook or on YouTube. Dr. Brown is a very, very, very intelligent man. He's got very, very firm ideas on just about everything. But he is a marvel in the fact that no matter who he's talking to, even if they have a viewpoint which he considers an abomination before God, he always deals politely with them. He never demeans them. That's extraordinary. So here for all of us is a final bit of wisdom from Pierre Kayavot from uh, the Mishnah. Ben Zoma says, who is the wise one? He who learns from every person, as it says, I have acquired understanding from all my teachers. My friends, my sisters and brothers, and Stuart Dowell, when I'm talking to you also, we live in an argumentative world, but we live in a world that does not learn, has not learned how to argue. It has not learned how to show respect it has not learned how to listen. It has not learned how to grow. People are just entrenched in their positions. I see it every day. And they're flinging brickbats and mud at each other over the wide gulf that exists between them. 
Judaism teaches that there's a better way to be. I've shared some of that with you today. I've also shared with you from the bad example of Korach and company of the terrible ways in which they behaved and brought doom upon themselves. So I'm not telling you don't argue. I'm telling you, argue like a mensch. Go out, listen, listen, listen. And when you come into an argument, may you and the person or persons with whom you argued each come out saying, I really learned something today. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to the Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Let's pray. Thank you for the wisdom that we've considered today, Lord God, the wisdom of your word, the wisdom of our tradition, the wisdom of people better than ourselves. God forbid that we should go forth from this time unchanged. As the song says, change our hearts, O God. Make them ever new. Change our hearts, O God. May we be like you. We ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. We come now to the Alenu.